0: Welcome to the season one finale of Behind the Scrubs, an original podcast series produced by UT Arlington's College of Nursing and Health Innovation. I'm Aspen Drew, the manager of Conhai's Center for Rural Health, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Jeff Taylor, ConHei's Director of Academic Advising. Hey, Jeff.
1: Hey, Aspen. How's it going today? It is good. How are you? I hey, know, I'm doing quite well here. I'm, I'm sitting here. I'm looking down. I'm looking at your shoes right now, Aspen. I, I looked you, at your shoes too. but. You did. Yeah. What, what kind of you? What kind of you rocking today? I got Toms. Toms. Did you know? about toms did you know that every pair of toms you buy that they buy a pair of shoes for someone else
0: yeah and i fully support their vision and mission of doing that and i've probably put like 10 pair of shoes on children's feet
1: you because know what? That's because you're a good person, Aspen. <gasps> thank
0: you, thank you, Jeff. Wish I could say the same for you. I'm just kidding.
1: <laughs> is there? Wow. Is there nothing to say about my shoes?
0: Okay, your shoe. Okay, so he has some like fake Jordans on. They're really nice. Okay, these are not. Okay,
1: this is this is slander, and I'm glad we're getting this recorded. These are not fake Jordans. I'm putting my shoe up on the table. Listen, these are Reebok pumps. Aspen, what does the pump do? I don't. Now, understand. Okay, you you squeeze the little little tongue right there, and it guarantees you to jump higher, <laughs> jump farther, and everything else. D. Brown used them in the dunk contest like before you were born. <laughs> I suggest you look it up.
0: <laughs> okay, I will do that. right after we get done recording this podcast episode.
1: So, Aspen, this is our last episode.
0: I know. Is it
1: for this season, anyways? Right. So, what real talk? What was your favorite? last episode of a TV show. Like series finale. Mm,
0: like, that's hard.
1: Like Alf? When he was captured by the government agents. No. Dinosaurs, where they were frozen dinosaurs. and like snowed in.
0: I do like I do like dinosaurs.
1: Seinfeld when they're all in jail. <laughs> Game of Thrones, when like for some reason Bran became king. Spoilers. No, we're not
0: no, no, we're definitely not
1: Mm-mm. not doing that Mm-mm. when Well, hopefully, too controversial to talk you know, about. We're not planning on ending on a cliffhanger today, y'all, but we're going to do our best.
0: We are going to do our best. So today we're talking about politics.
1: Yeah, it's been a while since we've had an episode, Mm -hmm. to be honest. I'm kind of mad about it. It's been
0: been a while. Yeah. And you're right down the hall from me now. I
1: know, we're neighbors. So we could do this literally every day. Oh
0: my God, I'm so excited. We're doing it every day now. Uh,
1: uh, Y'all get ready because it's going to be a lot of fun. (laughs) So what, what was the delay? What's going on?
0: I mean, long story short, right, we were trying to get a political figure of any kind, really. But somebody that specifies in, in rural health, they talk about rural health bills, they fight for rural health advocacy, that type of thing. But this time of year is so busy for everybody. You know, we have commencement. Congratulations to all of our graduates, by the way. Absolutely. And we have commencement and, you know, we're super busy here. And then, you know, I know that the politicians are also busy, especially because they're in legislative sessions at the moment. So I think that it's just been kind of a crazy time of the year and it's hard to manage. So hard to find time and
1: schedules. In two hours to talk to us about a lot of things that we hope is rural health, but winds up becoming... Other things as well it could be a lot.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. To be fair, but we're hoping they let us back and have a season two. We'll definitely going to keep trying <laughs> to work on getting the politicians here with us as well. That's right. Because they need to answer the hard questions about what their favorite ice cream is or what their favorite restaurant is. It's got to be chocolate. That's the only it's got chocolate. Something chocolate ice cream. Yes, chocolate ice cream. I don't even know you.
0: <sighs> anyway,
1: again, promises made, promises kept. We kept saying episode four was going to have a politician. So we're looking at something with a political bent still. And so what we've done, and by we, I mean Aspen, has done considerable research over a lot of legislation currently taking place in Austin and in Washington right now that could impact rural health and other things um, impacting rural communities. So Aspen has done a lot of wonderful research and is going to go and provide us with some information today. I will serve as the audience avatar and just ask questions and react, because I didn't do any research. It's kind of a sweet gig I've got going on here.
0: <laughs> Must be nice, you it, know?
1: It's, it's pretty good, yeah. actually. I'm, I'm I'm a fan.
0: I just want you guys to know that Jeff advocated for that for himself. He was like, how about you do all the research, and I'll just act like I know what I'm doing. I kind of got pushed into it. It's fine. It's fine. I do want to clarify that these things that we're going to be talking about today um, UTA does not have a stance on any of these. So I want to clarify that this is specifically mine and Jeff's Not necessarily opinions because they're mostly fact-based. So we're going to start with talking about state bills today, and then we'll kind of move into federal bills a little bit. Again, I do want to clarify that Jeff literally has no idea what I'm going to talk about. So all of his responses are going to be very genuine Jeff responses.
1: That's the hope.
0: So I want to express a little bit about how a bill becomes a law before we kind of like jump into the full talking about the bills I want everybody to be able to listen to this podcast and understand what I'm talking about. So basically what happens is that say that a representative goes in and they say, hey, we want to expand Medicaid. And so that bill is written up and then it's introduced to either the House or the Senate, depending. And then it goes into committee hearings and then for that House or the Senate. And then it gets passed down to the floor. Once they vote on it on the floor, if it's passed, it gets sent to the other House. So say it started in the House, then it gets moved to the Senate. It goes to the Senate committee hearings, and then it goes down to the floor of the Senate. If it's passed without amendments, then it goes straight to the governor, and then the governor gets a chance to sign off on it or not. If it's passed with amendments, then it gets sent back to the original House or Senate. And then if they concur with that, then it goes to the governor for official passing. Most bills become law January 1st of the next year, but uh, some, it's specified that it's a different date. So just so everybody's kind of aware of how that process works.
1: You know, literally anybody that's listening to this that's over the age of thirty five is singing I'm just a bill from schoolhouse rock right now. It's on my it's in my brain and I did everything in my power not to sing it, y'all. But thank you, Aspen.
0: Well now I feel like we need to have a snippet of that song into the into this right now just a bill
1: yes i'm only a bill and i'm sitting here on capitol hill well it's a beautiful long, long
0: right. i could sing it too <laughs> oh god please no okay <laughs> we're okay i think we're fine <laughs> we, we only have a certain amount of time right. He, right we don't want to
1: <laughs> so the so first wait for my big chance <laughs>
0: Don't worry, go we'll get it on another podcast. We're gonna start another podcast that's just Jeff singing. It's gonna be amazing.
1: You have tens of listeners.
0: <laughs> so let's start with talking about state bills. So the first state bill that we wanted to talk about today is Senate Bill 19. So Senate Bill 19 is basically creating a new higher education endowment fund. At the moment it's been approved in-house with one vote against it, so super successful. And that's now moved to Senate. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, he specifically said that as Texas's economy and population continue to grow rapidly, so do our workforce needs. Cutting-edge research and innovation are occurring at Texas universities, adding fuel to our economic engine. This new university fund, it's called the Texas University Fund, TUF, and it's going to provide funding to the non-permanent university fund universities. So basically, the University of Texas, including ourselves... And Texas A&M University and the systems that they're associated with are eligible for the Permanent University Fund, which is called the PUF. That's been an endowment for quite some time now. But this TUF fund will actually expand that funding specifically to other eligible research universities around the state of Texas. So specifically, it's going to affect rural communities because other universities will also be able to fund more research specifically in rural communities. So I think that this is going to be a positive thing.
1: That sounds great, and the fun thing about the PUF and how, how A&M got in there, and uh, with apologies to our Aggie listeners out there, the reason why Texas A&M was included was because the state many, many, many years ago ruled that Texas A&M was the agricultural arm of the University of Texas, so anytime a uh, Aggie's giving you any grief there, UT folks, just remind them of that. I guess that's true, my history teacher said that like 25 years ago. That sounds right, and we're going to go with it. Sure. I don't think he was from UT
0: We didn't approve that on from Google but it's fine.
1: I just have it all up here. Sure, I, don't, I don't need sure. I don't need Google for this <laughs> educational knowledge you know but the funding is all re- oh, seriousness though the funding that is that is very important because there's a lot of schools out there and you know in the, the consolidation of the university systems are really important as well what was the one uh, Midwestern State recently joined up with the Texas Tech System. And so these schools are trying to find ways to increase their funding and their resources and their opportunities. So any help that they can provide is essential because we have the UT system, we have the A&M system, the Texas Tech system, we have the uh, North Texas system, Mm -hmm. the Texas state system. Yeah. I think that's all of them. I think right now, as far as the significant ones there, and there's a lot of schools that a lot of small towns, smaller cities that do need that help.
0: Yeah, for sure. And the the center at the moment, we have five research studies right now that are in rural communities and are are active. And so we have a full-time faculty member and then we have somebody from the rural community who's also doing the work with them. And it's been super fun and exciting to see all of this rural research that's expanding. And so I think that this expansion of funds is only going to help that and be, you know, great for us and great for the rural communities too because there's so much research that focuses on urban areas. And there's just not as much research that focuses on rural because they don't really have the resources. And so I'm super excited to see this specifically going to research educational institutions. So um, we'll move along and, and go to Senate Bill 25. So Senate Bill 25 is basically creating new scholarships for RNs. It has passed the Senate and it's sitting in the House after the first read as of May the 8th. Basically, this program would expand loan repayment options to part-time faculty members. At the moment, they're not eligible for loan forgiveness. And so if it did happen, it would actually take effect September 1st. So I know that we talked a little bit earlier about how normally it's not going to take effect until January 1st. But this specifically would actually take effect September 1st. Long story short, this is going to help rural communities because we have a lot of preceptors in the rural communities that are basically trainers for our nursing students. And so our nursing students go out into those areas and the preceptors just basically volunteer their time as a part of the goodness of their heart and their part-time faculty members. And so this really gives more of an incentive to become a preceptor as you're part-time with the university because now you're eligible for student loan forgiveness, right? So that's huge. Originally, it was strictly full-time. So I'm super excited that that's even being talked about at the moment.
1: Sure. It is interesting because, again, you get the idea of full-time faculty. Those positions are not as common now. I can say specifically within our college, we have several faculty that are retiring every single year. So those positions, they're available, but they're very limited. There's more and more students graduating with their MSN, with their PhD, with their DMP, and there's just not a lot of faculty positions. So speaking specifically with the nursing faculty as it goes along... I think it is important to do this for the, for the part-time folks, because for budgetary reasons, a lot of schools can't have a lot of full-time faculty. And if you have a small school that may be getting some of this TUF funding, like we mentioned a second ago, and if you have some that are in a community that can't really afford a lot of full-time faculty or have folks that are working full-time and then doing some part-time teaching on the side, this is a great opportunity because that student loan forgiveness is valuable. And these folks are serving the community so it's um it's a no-brainer i feel like that these folks should get this assistance
0: yeah i completely agree with that and we're going to talk a little later about some federal bills that also are going to assist with student loan forgiveness specifically for physicians or aprns but we're going to talk about that a little later
1: so is there a bill that's for podcaster loan forgiveness mm-hmm. is that out there does that exist yet i'm gonna have to look that up. okay I got you, though. Okay. I'll get back with you. We'll work on that. Okay, great.
0: (laughs) So we're going to move forward to Senate Bill 26. Basically, Senate Bill 26 is specifically talking about mental health care. So basically, this bill is looking to expand mental health care beds across the state of Texas with a focus on rural counties. It has passed the Senate. It's sitting in the House, as all of these Senate bills are. So this is a $15 million bill that's going to expand local mental health treatment options for children and families. So all positive things there. Basically, what this bill is supposed to do is going to offer grants to healthcare providers and nonprofit groups who offer mental health treatment, especially those that work with children and their families. It's going to be overseen by Texas Health and Human Services. This bill is also going to direct the state to consider new funding options for nursing homes that could provide long-term inpatient care to people with behavioral treatment needs but who no longer need to be in the state's psychiatric hospital system. It's also going to require the state to audit local mental health authorities once every 10 years and publish online data related to mental health care. It will also create a discharge and transition system to help people in the state hospitals gradually make their way into the community. So fun fact about this bill and something that I found in my research. So Texas was ranked in 2022. We were ranked dead last when it comes to access to children's mental health services and 33rd out of 50 states for adult care, according to Mental Health America, which is a nonprofit advocacy group. Today, 98% of Texas's 254 counties are wholly or partially designated by the federal government as a mental health professional shortage area. So that means that there is 98% of our counties, and we're the second largest state, 98% of those counties do not have enough mental health care. And so this Senate bill is really focused on expanding that health care, getting these resources out to rural communities specifically, even though it's also needed in urban areas too. So this is really touching on both. 98%?
1: 98 percent that's not ideal you it's not it's not, not what an you ideal want. yeah and this is one that kind of hits me personally as far as child care and mental health needs. I have three children and all of them receive some form of mental health assistance and I can say one of them the the first time she needed it was like first grade second grade it was pretty obvious something we, we needed to address something outside of outside of the school. And you know working here at UT Arlington, we are fortunate we're blessed to have really good insurance and but trying to find a, a board licensed psychologist to meet with her was one of the toughest things ever, y'all. And so we have these Blue Cross and Blue Shield. and one of the things about Blue Cross and Blue Shield was they have these health advocates. It's wonderful. you call this number, say, I'm looking for this in this particular area and they'll help you. They'll call the people make appointments for you. I had to call my health advocate twice, and he called 30 different providers locally. Couldn't get any answers. Couldn't get any feedback, left messages, no callbacks, nothing. I talked to a few folks, and I'm like, well, if only she was 10, we mm-hmm. could see her. If only she was 11. If only she was 12, whatever it was. Finally, finally found one person called me back, and it was literally it was on election night 2020. Is when I got a call back because I was, I come back from the grocery store and she just calls me like at eight o'clock at night. Um, shout out Dr. Terry. She's awesome. <laughs> but that was it. And I never got any callbacks. It was like, please allow a few days and nothing. And this is with private insurance, fully paid mm-hmm. you know, with all the resources of a full insurance company here. And urban. Urban area. And it was, it, I, w- I would have gone anywhere to it. And so, and it was, couldn't get it. It was just such a struggle. And in light of the, the pandemic, I can see it in my kids. I can see it in their friends. The mental health thing is, is real and we need help. The, the statistics speak for themselves. And so if this even does a fraction of what it says it can do, I think it's going to be a tremendous benefit.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with that. And um, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick also singled out this bill specifically and said that he supported that and that this was really the biggest expansion of mental health care in the state ever in history. And he would argue with the country too. I think that if we can expand mental health care around the United States in general, it would be fantastic. So hopefully this is kind of the start of that. The last couple Senate bills that I'm going to talk about that are state related. So this is Texas Senate Bill 343, and it focuses on the expansion of eligibility for Medicaid. To all individuals for whom federal matching money is available. So this bill or something similar has been going through the process for quite a couple years now, so I personally am not expecting this to go through. It's been referred to a subcommittee as of February 15th. Just based on historical context, I don't think that this is going to be passed, but I do want to mention it. If that does happen, the federal bills that we're going to talk about in a little bit that expand Medicaid, this is going to show whether those get accepted in the state of Texas or not. Just want to cover that. Also, I want to mention that Texas currently has a waiver waiver. I call it the 1115, but I don't know what they technically call it. But the 1115, and it's a waiver that is funding uncompensated care until the end of 2030. So basically, when Trump was in office, he extended this. It was only it was supposed to only be until 2024. And then they extended this waiver to 2030. And it's basically for people specifically that, well, it has two sides. So the first side is that it's a supplemental pay program that pays hospitals for uncompensated care delivered to patients without insurance. So it's specifically for people without insurance. And then the second side is the delivery system reform incentive payment program. It provides funding for innovative healthcare initiatives, largely for Medicaid recipients, the uninsured and low income. So, again, this is really one reason why Texas has not agreed to expand their Medicaid program. So. Just wanted to touch on this waiver that we have available, but it does not expire until 2030. So I really can't see us agreeing to expand Medicaid until after this waiver is no longer valid, which would be 2029, the voting year of
1: 2029. In six years.
0: So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. I'm hopeful. I hope that Medicaid gets expanded. I work in healthcare, so I'm a little biased, but I hope that that happens.
1: I feel like I'm upset about the person's stories today. So we, we, love a Jeff personal we story. drove over the weekend to, a, to Lubbock out to West Texas for a graduation at Texas Tech. And my twins, they're 12 years old. We we're driving along, you know, so we took a rural <laughs> road, mainly the way out there, kind of a back way, just to kind of get, you know, see a different part of Texas that we don't usually see. We're going through these small towns and the, and my girls were, were looking around and they just started asking questions. They're just, they're naturally curious people. And they're like, well, what do people do out here for groceries? said, oh, well, you know, they go to the next nearest town. It's right here or right here. You know, there's a, there's a Lowe's grocery store or there's a Walmart or, or whatever. And they would go along a little further. Well, what do they do if they're sick? Oh, there's some clinics here and there. What do they do if there's an emergency? And so I said, do you remember those helicopters that fly by? You know, the care flights. You know, sometimes depending on what's going on, wherever they are, they may go from one particular smaller hospital to another. I said, yeah, but what if they're not near one of those? I said, That's, you're asking Psh- great questions and it's questions that everybody's asking and i think it's a thing i I remember reading this i I just looked it up and it's in in january there is someone who is looking to put health clinics in rural communities do you know who it is if you go to a lot of small towns in texas and i'm sure it's other places as well there's a little place called dollar general Mm -hmm. and dollar general which sounds like it should be cheaper it's usually not Is sometimes one of the only resources for food that these smaller communities have.
0: And they started putting produce sections in Dollar General specifically for this reason. That's actually something that Texas installed just for healthier Texas.
1: Sure. And they're trying some retail clinics. They're trying a pilot program. And I'll I'll tell you this. They can get into those communities. They're already there. Mm -hmm. They see an opportunity. And they're going to make some money off of it, but they're going to meet a need that's there. Me personally, I would rather us as a society look out for our people and do this ourselves, but someone is going to meet that need. And it might be Dollar General. I don't know. But I feel like there's opportunity here that feels like from what you've shared, Aspen, and thank you for all of your research. It does seem like there is a lot of opportunity and a lot of things in the pipeline that could make some of this better. But it could always be better as well. We, we can't ever rest on our laurels.
0: Dollar General and libraries are the two consistent things that you are going to find in every single rural community in the entire state of Texas. So honestly, props to them for identifying the need and being like, yeah, let's we, we have enough money to do this. We're already located there. Let's do it, right? I am fully behind companies that are already in those areas.
1: Someone's going to meet the need.
0: I mean, my vision, right? And I, I think a big reason why we started the center in the first place was to bring equitable access to health care. Part of that is resources. If there's not a place for people to be able to provide care, how can they provide care? Right? Like I said, 32 counties in the state of Texas that don't even have a physician or a nurse practitioner at all present because there's not a clinic or a hospital or the clinic or the hospital in that area closed. There's been over 20 that have closed in rural areas in the state of Texas since 2010. And that's increasing. So great. If they will provide a location, I promise you the people in the rural communities that have degrees, they will come. If you build it, they will come. So let's move on to our federal bills. There's a couple big ones that we're going to touch on first, and then we'll kind of trickle down. Again, this is all fact based material. We are not giving opinions. We're just kind of chatting about the facts and how this is probably going to affect some of the rural communities. So, one of the first things that I wanted to talk about is the federal end to the public health emergency declaration. Of course, COVID-19 was a huge deal, right? It affected so many people. It affected the rural communities so much. So it was declared a public health emergency back in 2020, and that declaration just ended on May 11th. So basically what this means is that certain funding types are going to expire, especially for rural community hospitals and clinics. And there's a couple other things that are changing, right? So Long story short, what does the end of this public health emergency mean for you in the rural communities, in the clinics, in the hospitals? So vaccines are going to remain available, of course. The U.S. government is currently distributing free COVID-19 vaccines for all adults and children, and that is set to continue. However, the COVID-19 at home tests may not be covered by your insurance anymore. It really depends on your insurance provider. However, the government is no longer mandating that they have those tests for free treatments are going to remain available so medication to prevent severe COVID-19 such as Paxlovid will remain available for free while the supplies last but after that the price is going to be determined by the medication manufacturer and your health insurance coverage so we'll probably see prices on those go up
1: unfortunately I can can definitely trust those guys to keep prices down
0: (laughs) yeah (laughs) I can't
1: (laughs) (laughs) if there's one thing I learned watching the fugitive starting Harrison Ford 1993 was it those drug companies? <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Vastic is what that was <laughs> back then. That was. Oh, that movie's wonderful. That's a fantastic movie. I recorded it the other night. I was watching oh, Tombstone God. on TV oh, and uh, it was coming up next to Fugitive. I hit record on it. I haven't watched it yet. God. <laughs> Have you seen the Fugitive Aspen? I haven't seen it. Oh my either. gosh. I'm going to put it on my list now. It's so good. Put it on my list. i recommend Highly um, recommended.
0: Our national reporting of COVID-19 may change as well. It's still going to allow the CDC and the members of the public to understand COVID-19's dynamics at the community level, but it actually is going to change a little bit in terms of metric.
1: So is the thinking that it's over because of the lowered fatality rates? Are we just tired of paying for it? What do you think?
0: So the World Health Organization and the CDC agreed that COVID was no longer a global health pandemic. And so that's basically why they decided to consider this no longer a public health emergency. Public health emergencies also cost the government quite a bit of money. So I'm sure that, you know, our healthcare system is focused in America. Realistically, it's focused on money, right? It's focused on profit. And so it's certainly not a non-for-profit industry. So I think that um, because of that, it's likely that that's one of the reasons that they're not considering it a public health emergency anymore. While all of those things that I had talked about earlier are not going to be available anymore, what is going to remain available in terms of metrics, you're still going to be able to find COVID-19 hospital admissions. All hospitals are required to report that data through the end of April 2024, so this is basically going to provide a consistent and comprehensive way for weekly tracking of severe COVID-19 at the county level, and then that data is going to shift from daily to weekly reporting shortly after May 11, 2023. COVID-19 deaths will remain, but the source of data has changed, so the National Vital Statistics System, the NVSS, is the most accurate and complete source of death data, And timeliness of death certificate reporting has improved over the course of the pandemic. But a new metric, the percent of deaths that are COVID-19 associated and other metrics from MBSS is going to be reported weekly. Also, emergency department patient visits with diagnosed COVID-19 are going to continue to be posted on a weekly basis. So these data cover about three quarters of the nation's emergency departments and provide information about COVID-19 trends in most states. That's typically what you're going to see on like news stories and whatnot. COVID-19 test positivity will remain, but the source of data has changed on that as well. So after May 25th of this year, the CDC is going to report regional level test positivity data from the National Respiratory and Enteric Virus Surveillance System. It's a longstanding system that has over 450 labs from across the country that voluntarily submit data. And this data really provides early indications of COVID-19 transmission. So they're the ones who are kind of like showing the spikes. So the wastewater surveillance and genomic surveillance will also remain in place. Basically, this just allows the CDC to track transmission and how the virus is mutating. So that's how we get these like new medicines and stuff that basically help when we're sick with COVID. The count of COVID-19 vaccines administered is going to remain for jurisdictions who continue to submit data, but the frequency is going to change. So instead of it being weekly, it's going to be monthly now. Some data has also been added to the requirements. So the percentage of COVID-19 associated deaths each week. Basically, the reason that this has been added is to make sure that we are provided with a timely look at whether the proportion of COVID-19 deaths are increasing or decreasing. And it's actually modeled after the indicator for flu surveillance as well. So, you know, in the news, when every year they're like, oh, flu's happening. Yeah, that's basically what they're going to be doing with COVID now, too.
1: you more No, that's interesting. Yo, know, do you ever give yourself the home COVID I test? Was- I don't know if I ever did them right. I don't know. Like it, because I have, I've had COVID once and it was last summer and I was really upset about it because I had a good streak going of, of not having COVID and, and I tested, I didn't feel well and I did the home test and it was nothing. It was negative. And then I went to Walgreens, I think, um, or CVS, one of them and I had a positive, you know, the full PCR test. So I don't know if I'm doing it right or not. Um, uh,
0: you know, there is a saying that says that men don't follow instructions well, so it's fully possible who, that you just didn't a
1: or error. Who made that saying? Who's the inventor of the saying? I'm,
0: uh, it was anonymous.
1: I, I remember that from, like, Tim Allen stand-up comedy, you know? What was that, like, the 70s? No. Like, Home Improvement, you know? <laughs> that guy, don't make me do it. <laughs> uh, you know, Jonathan Taylor Thomas. No. 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 <laughs>
0: None of these and names I'm are. Promise
1: you, if you're of that generation, you—I guarantee you—had a <laughs> JTT poster.
0: <laughs> I love it. I love it. So let's move forward and talk about Medicaid and Medicare. What everybody really wants to talk about.
1: That's right. The other Eminem. <laughs> the other other Eminem.
0: Okay. This is a hot topic, like a real hot topic. Okay. So.
1: Like goth wear, like yeah. EMO clothes. Like EMO
0: clothes. Hot topic. Quickly, really quickly, Medicare, because this is confusing for a lot of people. So Medicare is specific to 65 and older, and then some, some people also qualify with disabilities. And then Medicaid specifically is for uh, limited income families and resources, basically resource allocation. So just to clarify that for, again, listeners that have no idea about political ideals and, and things like that, right? And those who don't work in healthcare, because I, before I started working here, I really was not clear on those either. So just wanted to say that. Also, wanted to say that Texas is one of 19 states that has not accepted federal Medicaid expansion. The reason that I'm clarifying that is because I'm going to talk a lot about a lot of bills that are trying to expand Medicaid. So again, Texas is one of 19 states that has not done so. So let's dive in. You ready, Jeff?
1: Absolutely. Okay.
0: Are we on the same page? Do you you understand what I'm talking about? Yeah. What's
1: Medicaid? It's
0: a user error, you know?
1: Okay, so. I did the swab like 15 times (laughs) in each nose.
0: In each nose? You have multiple noses? Uh, No,
1: nostril. Like, yes, every nose that I have, I was swabbing.
0: (laughs) Maybe that's why you got a negative test, because you have two noses.
1: It's possible. I'm concerned a little bit. It's Okay.
0: Okay, so the number of Texans that are currently covered by Medicaid, well, I say currently, but as of May of 2021, because this number has increased, a little over 5 million people. I also would like to clarify that there are 4 million people that live in rural Texas. That's 15% of our population, almost 16%, but it's a little over 4 million people total that live in rural communities in Texas, just for clarity. The number of additional Texas residents who would be covered if the state accepted expansion is almost another 2 million people. want to say that as well. The number of people who have no access to health insurance without Medicaid expansion is almost a million people. It's 771,000 to be specific. And then the federal amount of money that Texas is leaving on the table in 2022 by not expanding Medicaid, according to healthinsurance.org, because I'm not saying this for myself, I'm saying this is a fact, is $15.3 billion. So basically what that's saying is that because we have not expanded Medicaid, we are not getting the extra funds. Now, there's obviously reasons to not expand Medicaid, at least from Texas representatives' perspectives, but we're not going to go into that. We're going to talk about specifically some of these bills that they would like to use to expand Medicaid. The first bill that I want to talk about is hra 33 and you can look up any of these bills through the NRHA websites and the National Rural Health Association. They are not paying me to shout them out, but I use them a lot for legislative tracking. They are really fantastic at advocacy and whatnot, which I'll talk about a little later with Jeff as well, in case that you're interested in advocating for rural health or or anything like that. So this bill, H.R. 833, again, these are all federal bills that I'm going to talk about. It's basically to provide enhanced payments to rural health care providers under the Medicare and the Medicaid programs. It's going to amend titles 18 and 19 of the Social Security Act. Long story short, Jeff, It is really hard for a lot of these rural hospitals because they're basically only taking uninsured or people with Medicaid or Medicare into their hospital. And that payment is not quite as much as a private payment would be. And so now that the public health emergency has been declared over, they're not getting a lot of the federal programs that they were getting funding for before. A lot of those have ended. So Texas rural hospitals at the moment are more than forty percent likely to close
1: in the next five years. So this would apply to like our last episode's guest, Dr. Mm-hmm. Richburg, at, at Lynn County Hospital District, and how that might work there. Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: So that's one of the bills that we're talking about to expand Medicare. Another one is Senate Bill 803. And it's to establish an area wage adjustment floor for Medicare hospital payments. That's been introduced to a subcommittee as of March the 15th. Another that specifically is for Medicare is Senate Bill 1110. This one really is made to modify and extend certain payment adjustments for rural hospitals under Medicare's inpatient prospective payment system. So basically, it's going to make payment adjustments permanent for Medicare-dependent hospitals That program is set to expire in fiscal year 24. So it's going to make this program permanent for them.
1: Just try to get us all through what this all entails. Anything that involves payment to hospitals, it tends to not raise red flags in my brain, but it tends to definitely strike a chord with me. Because I was just, I just think about all the times, you know, I haven't had surgery that many times, but I've taken my kids to the doctor. I've had surgery a few times. I was having some procedures and I pay my out of pocket. And then, like, six months later, I get another bill. And I'm Mm -hmm. wondering, what is that bill for? Where did that come from? And so I'm always confused. I'm perpetually confused when it comes to funding with hospitals
0: which is completely fair. And, and in our last episode with Melanie, you know, we did touch on that a little bit about how difficult payment is. The state of Texas currently has six payment methods. So it's super difficult to really understand all of them. And I could probably sit here and talk to you about it for like 45 minutes, just specifically the payment programs. I won't, you know, make people suffer that way. But um, I do want to say that the prospective payment system is a very specific system. And basically, it's a method of reimbursement where Medicare payment is made based on a predetermined fixed amount. So a lot of rural hospitals use this system. They're called PPS hospitals. And so just so that people understand what the PPS system is, it would probably be pretty good for rural communities, specifically because a lot of the rural community hospitals are PPS systems. So just to clarify that.
1: It is interesting, though, as you look at it, because the medical community doctors, they follow that Hippocratic oath. First, do no harm. And they're going to provide treatment. I don't think they're going to reduce anybody there. But I feel like with the funding issues, there is a temptation to, I wouldn't say they're going to send somebody home sick, but definitely more triage them and, you know, metaphorically slap a bandage on them if that's all they have the resources for. Resources are definitely a limited thing. And we're all, we're all strapped a little bit. So anything that can help with that will be very beneficial.
0: Yeah. And unfortunately, it's a lot of the rural areas that are mostly affected by that because, you know, you have clinicians and physicians and uh, nurse practitioners. You have all of these people that are working um, and sometimes at a volunteer capacity because, you know, they might not have anybody in that county. I mean, we've got 32 counties that don't have a physician or a nurse practitioner at all. And so some nurse practitioners will volunteer their time and they'll go into those counties and they'll provide basic medical care. Red Cross does, they have a mammography bus that goes into some of the rural areas and they do free mammographies. That's preventative care, but still that's huge. And so rural areas tend to not have as much preventative care as urban areas as well because they don't really trust the system in terms of health care.
1: I was pulling up a thing here that says two thirds of bankruptcies are caused directly by medical expenses. Mm-hmm. So people are struggling out there. And then you look at the funding that's you're you're mentioning here that's limited. Mm-hmm. And you see the, you know, there's my, my family lives out in East Texas and, and Van Zant County. And the Van Zant County hospital, they shut down a few years ago and they recently reopened, but is under a for profit model. It's just it's interesting that the the lack of public investment in all of the public is troubling and you look at the the people under having their medical debt and then you have the doctors and nurse practitioners they may not want to necessarily take Medicaid or Medicare because they're not getting as much mm-hmm. money. Mm-hmm. And so then, because they're again, they've got their own debt mm-hmm. as if, uh, from students that they're trying to pay off. So Absolutely. they they need to make their money. I understand that. so, This goes back to our state bills and the the Mm -hmm. loan forgiveness. There has to be something set up where you are receiving that benefit. If you are investing in the public in that way, there needs to be some help there. You want people to help out of the goodness of their heart. And I think a lot of people would, Mm -hmm. but if it doesn't make financial sense for them, it's not always going to work. Absolutely. So I don't know what that has to really do with anything you just said, but that's kind of, it's a. No, I it's think it's a complicated. It thing is to get your head over.
0: everything. I think everything is intertwined, right? I think that it's difficult to find funding from a student perspective. It's difficult to find fund, right? Like all rural communities, typically they make less than their urban constituents that are doing the exact same job, and so it's difficult to say like, okay, we can fix this one thing. Well, th- that thing is connected to another thing, mm-hmm. right? Like you said, in in a different, a whole different area. I think that it's going to be hard to make the changes, but if we're making small changes consistently, eventually that'll lead to a big change. I'm totally going to put a spiel in here for the center. If you're in a rural community in the state of Texas and you need help funding your education through UTA, please come talk to me. Email me. My email is aspen.drude at uta.edu. Please email me directly. I want to help you get your education and I want you to do it for free. We have an endowment fund specifically for rural communities, and that's through Amerigroup. Shout out to them. We really appreciate you guys for all that you do for our rural people. And so please contact me if I can help you in any way, because I want to help you get your education. I want to help you get it for
1: free. Okay, now I'm done. <laughs> oh, no, I'm not done. And if there's any program-specific questions you may have, send that second email. <laughs> to Infocon infoconhi, I-N-F-O-C-O-N-H-I at U-T-A E-D-U. And you could be invited to one of our visual information sessions with our recruiters. They can tell you all about our bachelor's programs, master's programs, doctoral programs, certificates, whatever you want.
0: Yes, absolutely. And our our producer, our lovely producer, is going to put those in the notes for you guys as well. So please feel free to reach out to us. Okay, okay. Now that our little spiel's done, I'm going to very quickly move on to... The next bill. And so the next bill is H.R. 1712. It focuses on rural health innovation. It basically is going to establish two grant programs. Again, none of these have passed. Right. So I do want to clarify that these are not programs that are approved to move through and become law at this point. Just to clarify. So it's going to establish two grant programs to increase access to emergency care in rural areas, which is such a huge deal. It's the Federal Office of Rural Health Policy, and the two things that they must provide in this bill is going to be grants to FQHCs, which are federally qualified uh, health centers, and then RHCs, which are rural health centers, to enhance provision of walk-in, urgent care, triage, and other emergency services. And then the second part is that they have to provide grants to health departments in rural areas for emergency services, primary care services, and similar services provided by emergency departments. This is obviously going to affect rural communities in a very real way. And so I think that this is really great. Oftentimes, unfortunately, there's only maybe one or two emergency vehicles or emergency centers within a reasonable distance in a lot of rural communities, especially in Texas. So I think this is going to be really huge.
1: That's great. So I mentioned earlier about my family living in East Texas. It's time for a story from my younger days. So I was living in, uh, well, my family still lives there, in a little town called Ben Wheeler, Texas. It's about 80 miles east of Dallas. And I was working there as a college student over the summer. My older brother, we were there in the store, and like young people were, we weren't really doing the work we were supposed to. And I bet my brother that he couldn't do a flat-footed jump about four feet in the air onto our counter. Well, he didn't have your shoes on. He did not have the pumps on, for what it's worth. But he said he could. I said you can't do it. And so he decided he's going to do his flat-footed jump up there. And he he almost made it. His toes made it. Oh no! And, but then he slipped off and he hit his shin oh, no. right on the edge of this wooden counter. Blood everywhere. Ew. It's not great. It's not what you want. And so, living in Ben Wheeler, we had two choices. You were either to go to Canton, which is about ten miles away, that had just regular standard urgent care clinics, or drive twenty five to thirty miles over to Tyler to get some true treatment. So we opted for Tyler. But again, this was a dumb accident with a you know, him thinking he could jump. He couldn't. You know, but in a true emergency with life or death, we're talking, you know, a half hour at least driving down a two lane state highway, even if you're in an ambulance. Right.
0: Unfortunately, like a lot of rural communities experience things like that, especially, 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 especially maternal care, because think about it, you're nine months pregnant and your water breaks and the nearest hospital to you that has a maternal section is an hour away and your water just broke. I hear those stories all the time. And so it's difficult for emergencies. It's difficult for maternal care. All of those things. It's very difficult to get from a rural community and transportation is a problem.
1: So my ex father in law was born in the back seat of a car in, noodle, in noodle, Texas. I Shout out Noodle, no Texas. Heard of it, Noodle? Yeah. Interesting. Yes. I learn things every day. Twenty. Yeah. Look at that.
0: So the next one we're going to talk about is HR fifteen sixty five. It's a Critical Access Hospital Relief Act. I talked a little bit earlier about critical access hospitals, but basically what this does is it's going to repeal the 96-hour physician certification requirement for inpatient critical access hospital services under Medicare. Basically, the current law says that physicians must certify that a patient may reasonably be expected to be discharged or transferred to a hospital that's within 96 hours of admission to a critical access. Basically, what a critical access hospital is there for is specific instances like that one where something happens, it's an emergency. Critical access hospitals are specifically placed in locations so that people have access to a nearer hospital, but they have to be transferred within a certain amount of time. And so this new bill is basically saying that physicians will no longer have to certify that they could have been transferred within a 96-hour time frame. I can see two sides of that. I can see the good side, obviously, because it's not forcing them to transfer within a certain period of time. I think probably the reason that this even is occurring is because COVID, they had a lot of problems with transferring people because there wasn't room for anybody. There were whole floors that were taken up for COVID. I think that that's probably why this still came about in the first place. That's not a fact. That's my opinion. Let's clarify. But I think that that's probably one of the reasons, if not the main one. And then the other side of it is that it may cause a little bit of backup in some of these critical access hospitals, depending how big they are. Some of these critical access hospitals are only. 11 beds something really small so i think it really just depends on the critical access hospital i would be interested to hear what somebody that works in a critical access hospital how they feel about this act specifically so i do want to say that the the hr 6400 bill is called save america's rural hospitals act i've been talking i've been hammering it in that our rural hospitals are closing at an alarming rate i am all for anything that's going to help save rural hospitals right so this act specifically is to improve and expand access to healthcare through sustaining critical access hospitals. So the provisions in this legislation are going to include the removal of the 96-hour rule, uh, elimination of Medicare sequestration for rural hospitals. And so we already talked a little bit about the 96-hour rule earlier, right, for physicians specifically. But basically, it's just going to allow a little more access to these critical access hospitals, and it's going to allow them a little more freedom, which I'm totally for. Also, maybe additional funding, which is huge for critical access hospitals specifically. So another strong issue that I feel really strongly about that I'm really happy to talk about and all the federal reforms that are happening on this topic is rural health workforce. A big problem that I see every day and that we talk to rural hospitals about in clinics is that they're struggling to find people to fill their workplaces. So like I just said, if you build it, they will come. They will. But how do we sustain the workforce? A lot of the workforce left due to covid And so how do we sustain that, right? And so these federal bills that I'm about to talk about are really promoting workforce-focused legislation. So the first one that I want to talk about is S-230. It's called the Rural Physician Workforce Production Act. And it's basically to reform graduate medical education funding in rural areas. That's pretty self-explanatory. Great. More funding to physicians. Awesome. Then we have the S-665 And that is basically the Physician Access Reauthorization Act, and it's specifically for physicians to provide incentives to practice in specifically rural areas. Awesome. So that's going to increase the amount of workforce, hopefully, because of the incentives to work in those rural areas. Then we have S-940, and that's basically to establish a student loan payment demonstration for eligible providers working in rural hospitals or clinics. That's for nurse practitioners, that's for RNs, and that's for physicians. So huge, huge, huge. Obviously, we at UTA, this is the College of Nursing, so we're focused on uh, nursing and nursing paths. However, physicians and nurse practitioners work together oftentimes, uh, and nurse practitioners have to have a doctor sign off, a physician sign off on their caseloads. And so this is really huge because it's going to establish an additional form of student loan forgiveness for rural areas, specifically if you work there for a certain amount of time. So I think it's going to be really great. And hopefully hopefully, these past, they have all also been referred to subcommittees as of sometime in March, the most recent being March 22nd. So we're still waiting to hear about those, but maybe we can have a a follow-up chat later about some of those things. So the last thing that I want to mention is the 340B drug pricing program. I am sure, sure, sure that if you follow any kind of political advocacy that you're going to hear about this program because it's it's so huge. So basically, this drug pricing program is a way to receive discounted outpatient drugs for rural hospitals that are serving vulnerable populations who might lack insurance or be low income. Specifically, it's for the medication for the patients. Basically, there's an act called the Protect 340B Act of 2021. I, I think they have a specific new name that's 2023, but Either way, um, this is still in the subcommittee as well as of the 6th of April. Basically, this is a Medicaid and Medicare program as well, so we're expanding on that. This program was established a really long time ago, so in 92, we're basically just talking about keeping the program. It's really required for pharmaceutical manufacturers who have drugs that are covered on an outpatient basis by Medicaid or Medicare Part B, and they have to produce these specific discounted drugs. We, We hope to keep that specifically to help our uninsured and those people on Medicaid and Medicare. So,
1: another story. Oh, boy. Somewhat related to this. You know, the personal touch, I think, is important on these. And really, I had a relative that was diagnosed with bipolar, and I can't remember the exact medication that she was on. But essentially, her insurance had an issue at the beginning of the year when it wasn't going to cover it right away. And so it was going to be an out of pocket expense at the beginning. Um, this medication, which was very helpful, just needed the assistance. And the pharmacy was going to charge her seventy-five dollars per pill mm-hmm. to get this very necessary mental health treatment going along there, and it's just amazing. And then with the insurance, it was forty bucks for the month. You know, with the insurance, once it all kicked in, so it was a few days, two hundred dollars out of pocket to get her mm-hmm. through the rest of the week, and then the insurance kicked in. It's a problem, y'all, and I think it's one of those where. You know, if you were to talk to me 20 years ago, 30 years ago, whatever it was, you know, I'd have a lot of different opinions, I feel like. But as you go through life and as you experience things and hear people telling their stories about what's going on and the struggles they have, it, it's honestly mind boggling. Mm-hmm. And I feel like those that advocate for us that we elect as our representatives, unless they are actually seeing this, if they're not living it themselves, a lot of stuff won't change. And so I'm optimistic about these coming through here, but until people see it and live it until it impacts them, that puts them over the, over the top quite a bit. And I think it's important to do anything that we can to be of help.
0: Yeah. And I agree with that. I, um, I had a similar experience where a pill that I needed for migraines was like $33 a pill. And I was in college at that point. <laughs> All college students are broke. Okay. That was a struggle, and at that point, you kind of have to decide, like, am I going to buy this pill that I need to successfully live my day-to-day life and be happy or mentally okay, or do I pay my light bill? That's never a decision that we should have to make. Right. Like, you shouldn't have to give up your basic necessities. to should just be able to make sure that you're okay in life, and so I agree. I'm hopeful that this program continues. I mean, like I said, it's been around for a long time, since 92 so I'm hopeful that it stays, but I think that it's a really positive thing for low income Medicare, and Medicaid. So Jeff, what's your uh, what's your biggest takeaway from today?
1: My biggest takeaway is there's a lot of bills out there. I mean, we a lot just for just for full disclosure, we had a pre-show and there was twice as many that mm-hmm. we kind of went over.
0: I narrowed them down,
1: and so it's just it's just a lot. And there's a lot that goes into this, both at the state and the federal level. And I feel like I've shared my thoughts throughout this quite a bit and there are opportunities for growth and for us to to do better as a society to help our most vulnerable folks and this season's about the rural community based on my stories you can tell that I've got family there I got you know it's something that I I directly get to see and experience on a regular basis so it's it's always a group that is overlooked and I feel like giving them a chance either through this podcast or through these, this legislation, whatever it is, uh, just giving these folks a voice and an opportunity, opportunity for equity and getting, you know, it doesn't have to all be exactly the same, but giving them that fair chance for access to have a normal life and be able to just go to the doctor without it being an issue and have things covered and paid for and whatever, as it, as it needs to come up without an issue. I think those are important things. And, you know, I think it was in our episode with, with Dr. Kyra Brown, it was like, the work never finishes. Like it's, it you never stop being an advocate. Yeah. And I think that's something that I'll take away from this and all whole season was really that if you don't keep talking about it, if you don't keep bringing it up, if you don't keep advocating, then nothing will change. Mm-hmm. And it feels like you're hitting your head against a wall from time. And you may be, but hopefully you have insurance and not to pay $33 to cure the headache from hitting your head against a wall. But really, it's something just you got to keep trying because that's all we can do. At the end of the day, if you can look at yourself with your head held high um, and know what you tried, that's that's all any of us can do.
0: Yeah. And speaking of advocacy, again, I'm just going to make a quick spiel. The NRHA and the National Rural Health Association and TORCH, TORCH is Texas specific. They both do a lot with advocacy. And our conference in October, I think we're also going to have a couple chats about advocacy, and we're certainly going to have some people from Torch and NRHA there. So feel free to check out our website for more information on the conference in October. But realistically, like those two organizations, they do so much with advocacy and they're so organized. And so I think that if anybody is interested in advocating, you know, there needs to be more nurses at the table for people to understand that these things are a problem. Nurses see everything. And this is really why we had a student, a researcher and a CEO, because they all see different facets of rural health. And so realistically, like the political initiatives that are happening, those things are going to affect all three of those types of people. They're going to affect us at higher education level. They're going to affect the student that just now graduated and is now an RN. They're going to affect the CEO, right? They're going to affect every aspect of the healthcare programs. And so especially in rural areas. And rural is a pretty hot topic right now in the political atmosphere. So I think you're absolutely right. The more that people are aware, the more you talk about it. I think that The better things are going to be in these rural communities because people are going to start coming out of the woodworks and they're going to start going through NRHA and Torch and all of these organizations that are rural specific and say like, hey, we have this problem. How can we fix this? And so our conference in October is all about rural challenges and solutions. And we're really emphasizing the solutions this year because, sure, we could talk all day about the problems. How do you fix those problems? How do you move forward? What's the plan? And so, yeah, I, I'm so happy that we decided to do rural health this season, and I have enjoyed being co host with you.
1: Yeah, partially it's been fun, partially.
0: <laughs> I had to give you, you know, I got to pick on you fine. a little
1: bit. No, it's all, it's all good. No, it's great. And so, our hope, just for those of you listening, is that this is not the end. We're going to do another season. We're going to figure out what's going on. What's most important. For our viewers we're gonna do some research mm-hmm. yeah, i'll do some this time too i guess and we'll we'll be back is our every intention to be back for more so stay subscribed on this channel
0: we hope to be back in fall that's our our goal is fall so
1: yeah we don't work as the that. summer but like as far as this goes like it's you know little known facts summer
0: i work in the summer i don't know about jeff
1: but Ah, you know, I've had many students email me and say, enjoy your summer break. I'm like, y'all, that doesn't exist. What
0: break are you speaking of?
1: We don't have that.
0: So I do want to make the statement that as the bills Mm -hmm. in the House and the Senate and Congress are all fluid and all the bills that we, you know, have have talked about during today's episode are ever changing. We do plan to update you guys on these bills and kind of where they're at in the notes for our podcast. So please feel free to go and check out our notes section and kind of keep up to date with those. You can also contact me directly if you have any questions about them. I'd be happy to kind of chat with you about them if you have any questions specifically.
1: One thing that's not fluid, my shoes are still pretty sweet. Thanks to everyone for listening to the season one finale of Behind the Scrubs.
0: We hope that you join us next semester as we continue our conversation with key voices in the healthcare industry that are discussing their areas of clinical care and sharing personal experiences as professionals in their industry. We'll see you guys later.
1: Bye, y'all.